And so we're going to pick up where he left off. Um, I'm going to take a larger chunk of Scripture today. It's sort of a story that I wanted to just let the story tell itself. And so we won't dissect every little idea and concept and word, but we'll, we'll, we'll do sort of a high-level flyover and make some application at the end. And so read with me. I'm going to begin in verse 12 of, of Acts chapter 5. And we're going to finish the chapter today. So hear now the word of the living God. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined them. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word, and we delight in your word, and we give you thanks for your spirit that empowers us and strengthens us, and we give you thanks for this example that we have in the text, this, this wonderful story of bold faith, courageous faith, and so Lord, we, as we live in a day as well, that the church is marginalized and seen as, as antiquated and hostile even to the ideas of the modern day, uh, we pray that you might give us the great measure of strength that you gave these apostles, that you would help us to stand firm in the day of trial, in the hour of our suffering, that we too might count it all joy and rejoice in all things where you might call us worthy to serve. And so, God, we thank you for this word. Teach us now, we pray. Um, Still our minds and our thoughts, Lord, may they all be held captive to Christ in this hour that we might have holy affection set upon Christ, a holy focus. Lord, I pray for any in this room that do not know Christ, that you might be set up as worthy today, that the the law, the gospel has impacted hearts and minds, uh, that we might be worshipers now as we call upon the name of our Lord, as we hear his word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the church really to do? Uh, We've seen over the last number of, of, of weeks, that the church has been attacked from the outside and the church has had some attack, if you will, from the inside. Last time I preached, we saw the apostles arrested. A couple times before that, we saw the apostles arrested. Now, they were not physically harmed at that time, but a legal precedent was, was set that day. Do not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. There was an absolute forbiddance of any ministry in the name of Christ. And we saw then last time when Brother Dustin preached that there was trouble from within. And that Acts chapter 5 is the first instance where we see sin in the camp of the church. We saw Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to God and they lied to Peter. And God made a point of them in that initial step days of the church and he struck them dead right there before all the people. This is really the parallel text to Leviticus chapter 10 where in the inauguration of the old covenant worship, Nadab and Abihu brought unauthorized fire to the Lord and God consumed them with fire there. The point of that text, the point of Acts 5 is God says, I will be regarded as holy. And now we see a second round of persecution has arose. Greater animosity is, is, is happening toward Christ and his laborers. And we see them, praise God, suffering well for the glory of God in this text. And what we see now here at the very birth of the church is that this has been the paradigm. This has been the pattern from the beginning. The church experiences times of great prosperity, great vitality, and the church at times faces great hostility 
and great oppression from the world. Oftentimes, these two can overlap, right? We think of the church. Our brother prayed for the underground church. We think of the church in, th- in China that is illegal in so many ways, but is thriving spiritually, even though they have to do so under the guise of darkness and whatnot. How can we read the words that happen there at the end of the text? How can we read the words that these men rejoiced as they were beaten by the authorities? How can a Christian rejoice in suffering, in hardship, in toil, when bad things happen, if you will? Well, my big idea, how I see this today, is this. Service to Jesus is filled with many joys and many hardships. Christians should rejoice to be counted worthy of any and all service to the King. Again, service to Jesus is filled with many joys, many hardships. Christians should rejoice to be counted worthy of any and all service to the King. We'll talk about that as we go. And so what I see first here, and I'm just going to walk us through this text, is a blessed report. Look back with me in Acts 5 and verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's Solomon's porch. It's an area in the temple compound. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that even so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is an incredible time of blessing for the church, an incredible time of growth. I I can't imagine what this looked like. We've seen already thousands of people have come to faith since Pentecost. Maybe 10,000. Masses of people, new converts, coming to the faith. And what did we just read here? But we read that the Lord, that people were being added to the Lord, multitudes more than ever. More than ever now. We've seen all of this growth, and more than ever now, the church is expanding and growing. There is this incredible work of God taking place. We've seen persecution from the outside. Today we see violence brought against the church. We've seen judgment and sin on the inside, and yet the blessing of God is being poured out upon his people, and the servants of God are zealous to obey the Lord as they serve him. And we saw that mighty deeds are being performed by the ascended Christ through his spirit-empowered agents, the Apostles, So much so that people are trying to put their sick in the street that hoping when Peter walks by that his shadow might even heal them. The text doesn't say that it did, but it does say that the sick and the demon oppressed came and they were all healed. This is something unprecedented that has not been seen in the history of the church from this time. And so what happens When the kingdom of God is flourishing, what happens? When God is pouring out his blessing, the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. 
The kingdom of light is flourishing, and thus the kingdom of darkness takes up arms to oppose the church and try to thwart this wonderful work of God. And so I want to say, beloved, as we begin this passage, I just want us to form how we approach this text and how we think about the things here. I think it's right for us to understand that this is what we should expect to experience in the world. We should expect hostility. We should expect difficulty. We should expect that we are in a spiritual war. Our weapons are not, uh, they're not carnal, right? They're not flesh and blood. First and foremost, our weapons are not spears and swords and guns and bombs. Our weapons are spiritual. We wield the sword of the spirit. We put on the armor of God. But we must be trained for battle. Amen. We must be trained for battle. What is happening here? This is nothing less really than, than a satanic plot to overthrow the, this early church preaching the gospel. It's the kingdom of darkness using the jealousy of men to try to overthrow the work that God is doing. And so I want just to remind you, you know this, but I want to remind you that if you take steps of faithfulness and obedience in this life, expect opposition, expect to be opposed. Some of you just recently in the past few months stood here and you took vows to link arms with this local body. You took vows of membership in, in, in a public statement before God, before the people of God, and before the principalities of, of darkness. And some of you had not been in that sort of formal fellowship for a time. Not that you were unbelieving, but just apart from the formal fellowship of a church. And, and you have made a public statement that you are linking arms with the people of God in this particular kingdom outpost to advance the kingdom of light and push back the kingdom of darkness. So expect opposition, church. Expect hardship. Expect spiritual warfare. Have, have, have you experienced this where you're, you're, something good is happening, you're taking steps of obedience, and then there seems to be this wedge driven between husband and wife or between parents and children? Why are we fighting? Why are we dealing with hardship? It just seems that when we walk forward towards Christ, there are always things that get in the way. Maybe you are one, as most of us are here, that are desiring to reform our households more and more according to Scripture. You're seeking to make your home a training ground for Christian disciples. You're teaching the Word, and your house is a house of prayer. Your house is a house of worship, and you're repenting of old practices where your home and your family and your marriage potentially was not conformed to the law of God. Prepare for opposition. Prepare for spiritual Warfare, this is prime time for the enemy to come and try and thwart the good that you are doing. Now, I'm not one that wants to give credit to Satan for every little thing that happens. I stub my toe and the battery of my car is not working and I'm under attack by the devil. I don't go that far, but we have an adversary that, roars, that, that roams around like a, like a lion seeking to devour. We have a spiritual foe that would destroy us if he could. And so we, we, we need to be aware of that. There's a real battle we're in. You try to walk in righteousness at work and glorify God, expect some challenge. Young people, young believers taking initial steps of obedience, seeing God points out sin in your life and you say, 
I want to overcome this. I want to get past this. I want to turn away from this area of my life. You rest assured that temptation will come and opportunity for that sin will avail itself often when you take a stand and say, I'm turning and fleeing from this. In Acts chapter 14, we'll get there eventually, but Paul is preaching as he would, and the Jews stir up the crowds to turn against Paul. And they stone him. Now, if you're familiar with stoning in the Bible, it's brutal. They would usually get on something of an elevated embankment, push a man down and grab rocks and throw them at his body and his skull until he would pass to the next life. These are not little rocks that little boys throw in a rock fight, but they would be something more like small boulders, and they leave him for dead. Now, a man's going to be pretty bloodied and battered if you throw rocks at his head until he seems to be dead. Some believe he's raised from the dead here. The text, I don't think, is, is explicit in that regard. But he raises up, and he goes back into the town, and they go to another place called Derby, And it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city... And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And hear this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is the pattern and paradigm for the Christian church. It doesn't mean that we are weak and impotent. It doesn't mean that Satan will overcome the church, but it means that we will live in such a way that if we are faithful, the kingdom of darkness will oppose and seek to subdue our good works. And so we see next in Acts 5, 17, a vain plot, a vain plot. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. These are the more liberal party. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees were liberal, and I mean that theologically in that they denied the resurrection, they denied spiritual, supernatural realities. They're filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, I find it ironic and I find it sad that these religious leaders, they claim the faith of Abraham. They they claim to serve the same God, the God of the Jews, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. They, They have the same fathers. They have the same heritage. They have the same word at this points, and yet it is jealousy that does them in. They are jealous because of their pride that the apostles are gaining power and influence and theirs is waning. I I, I just think there is a warning here for us, church, of jealousy and pride. That these men are undone because of this. And so they look to the apostles and they see that the masses are following them and and, and, and their power, their influence is waning, their respect is waning, and they're jealous. They're jealous. That's all it is. It's, it's sad, really. We think that jealousy should be something of a child. He has my truck. He has more candies than I have. He got five grapes and I got four. 
But we're all sinners, and sin and pride gets us at any age. And so they lock up the apostles because they're jealous of them. But it's a vain plot. We looked at Psalm 2 this last week, Wednesday, so it's in my mind there. But he who sits in the heavens laughs at this foolish scheme to try to overthrow the work of Christ's apostles. He mocks them, as Psalm 2 says, and holds them in derision, and he throws, overthrows their weak attempt. And what does he do? He sends his angel to waltz right into the prison, unlock the door, and let them out. I mean, behold the power of God. These men have brought these, these apostles in. They're trying to stop the work of the kingdom, and God simply opens the prison door and says, come out and get back at it, men. Get back on the horse. The Lord delivers them. And as we see this deliverance, to what end does he deliver them? Notice, he doesn't deliver them to relieve them of their duties. He doesn't come to them and say, men, you know, you guys have been valiant, you guys have been courageous, but things are getting a little dangerous for you. The authorities have not hurt you, but it's very likely that they will. You're stirring up too much drama in the community. You should probably take a step back and calm down a little bit. Your safety is in danger. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, you've done a good job. Go retire to the couch. He says, get back out there and preach again. That blessing that God gives when he gives us an extra wind of strength, it is to press forward, to labor on for his cause. When he gives a small measure of courage In a difficult situation, the the aim is that we press on in faithfulness, press on in obedience. It's not to send us home to retire, but it's to keep us in the fight. Now, it needs to be said maybe that clearly we are not all apostles. And we are not all called to do the work of the apostles. Notice in this text, it is the apostles that are in the temple preaching, not the church at large. Every Christian is not there doing that work. But I I, I appreciate, for many reasons, but I appreciate the Puritans as they've helped us think about the doctrine of vocation or calling. You know, in some circles, we, we think in the church that there's spiritual work and then there's secular work. The spiritual work really matters. The secular work is just sort of meaningless stuff that we have to do to pay the bills. The Puritans understood, no, God has called you to your vocation. And you are called to be a Christian at your vocation, to be a faithful, obedient, Christ-honoring Christian in your vocation. So has God called you to be a plumber or an electrician or an accountant? Do so to the glory of God. Work your job with integrity. Be the best employee that is there. Be salty and be shiny in the workplace. Has God called you to be a stay-at-home mom? Take care of the home. Care for your children. Man your station. Remain faithful in that good work that God has called you to do. Do so with joy in your heart. Has he called you to care for your elderly parents, to be at home? Do so with zeal. What a wonderful way to honor Christ in faithfulness. What a wonderful privilege to care for the ones that cared for us. Boys and girls, you're still saying, I don't know, Pastor, what God's called me to. I haven't figured that out yet. 
But clearly, one thing that he calls boys and girls to do, there is one easy, maybe not be easy, but there is one way that you can honor Christ every day, and that is honor mommy and daddy. He's put them in your life as your shepherds, your leaders, and you honor him in heaven as you honor them in your home. And so the apostles man their station. They get back to the work that God has called them to do. Look again in verse 21. I love this. They heard this. They entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. They got right back to their spots. Now when, verse 21, the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senates of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked in the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they are preaching, teaching to the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The apostles waste no time. They get back to their station and continue in the work that God has called them to do. They take their watch, if you will. I think there's two principles at play here. Do you see the contrast between the religious leaders and the apostles? I, I believe this, the contrast, at least one, is the fear of man and the fear of God. The fear of man and the fear of God. The leaders are people pleasers. They value their own personal safety, their own personal well-being, their own comfort and power above all else. That is what is guiding them here. Notice what it said. They arrested the apostles but not by force. Now, why is that? Because they're scared, right? They don't want to lose their place of power because these apostles are destroying that for them. But they also realize that if we're too hard on the apostles, the people are going to get upset and they're going to stone us. Paul, would you mind getting the door, brother? Thank you. And so they are purely pragmatic. They're all worried about the ends, and that is their safety, their well-being, themselves being propped up, and so they are man-pleasers, self-pleasers. But if we look at the apostles, they're God-pleasers. They value faithful obedience to Jesus above and beyond their personal safety and their personal comfort. For the apostles here, their first thought, the first question is not, what will happen to me if I do this? How will this negatively impact me and inconvenience me? The question they ask is, how can I best be faithful to God and obey his commandments? This is the principle that guides them. What has God said to do and what will please him? And that is what we shall do. <clears throat> now, 
Maybe it needs to be said that we need to use sanctified wisdom, right, in all situations. There are times, as I'm reading through the book of Acts, again, there are times where Paul retreats, where he deems that it is unwise to stay in a certain situation. The authorities are coming. He wants to continue to preach the gospel, and so they drop him from a basket on a wall, or they, they, they shuttle him out of the city. But there are times where he takes a stand because he believes that God has appointed him for this hour. Look at what he says here in Acts 21 and 13. The, the crowd, his friends, are distraught because they, they know what's going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul answers them in verse 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of of the Lord Jesus. That's a principled decision. I'm going to obey the Lord and let him decide what my fate is on that day. One group is cowardly that, that served, seeks to serve their own agenda and the other is courageous that seeks above all God's agenda. So let me ask you, church, let me ask us, let me ask myself, for all of us here, are you a man pleaser or are you a God-pleaser. Is your first thought, what will people think of me if they see this, if I say this, if they see my Bible, if I talk about Jesus? How will I be viewed? Uh, how might this situation of obedience, how is it going to make more work for me? Or how is it going to invade on my personal time? How will obedience in this area make me uncomfortable? Or what do I have to give up if I'm going to be faithful in this area? All of these thoughts are thoughts about pleasing men and pleasing ourselves. Should I do this or not? Is it going to be an inconvenience, a burden? The thought ought to be, how can I best please God? I remember uh, in the very beginning of my ministry, I was sitting down with a brother that was mentoring me, another pastor, um, and I was asking him, I would just sort of bounce questions off of him all the time. And I asked him how he addresses, what, how does he address the issue of two people that are unmarried in a relationship together, that are fornicating. Whether one's a Christian or two's a Christian or they're living together, they're in a sinful relationship. I asked him, how do you, how do you deal with this situation? What is your approach? And he said, I have a simple question that I asked him. And this question is, Stuck with me ever since. And so if we ever have this conversation, God forbid, I'm going to ask you this question. But the question is this. Do you want to please the Lord or do you want to please yourself? It's really that simple. Do you want to please God with this relationship or do you want to please the Lord with this relationship? And we were talking. He was talking to me about marriage counseling. And I said, what about if they're living together and they want to get married? What do you do? And he said, I tell them they have to repent. They have to separate and they have to honor the Lord for a time before they get married to show that they truly do want to please the Lord, even though they've already crossed that line. And I said, how does that go? And he says, oh, they've always left. None of them have stayed and got married. They've always refused me and went elsewhere to find someone else that would marry them. But here's the reality, beloved. That's a principled decision based upon convictions, not a decision based upon how men will receive it or how they might feel. This brother is trying to be faithful to the scriptures and please God 
and not men and trust that the chips will fall where they may. And we see that with the apostles. They're not man-pleasers. They want to please God above all else. And we see now in verse 27, they take a bold stand. A bold stand. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There's the principle. It's that simple. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, and he says our, he's talking about all of us, right, in the room at this time. We're all Jews here. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. A bold stand indeed that is taken by the apostles. Notice the response of the leaders. Notice again this difference here. Man-pleasing and God-pleasing. What, what is their statement? We strictly charged you. We are the authority. Yes, we all here serve God. You serve God. We serve God. But we said that you can no longer teach in this name. Forget everything that God is doing through your ministry. Forget all of the evidence that God is working through you. But we charged you to not preach in this name. And then again, they're in fear. They're concerned about what? That this man's blood would be brought upon us. It's a little late for that, don't you think? It's a little late for that. They opposed Jesus when he was preaching and teaching. They killed Jesus when he was walking on this earth. They then conspired a, a fake story that if someone said he was resurrected, make sure they know that they just stole away the body. And now here they are opposing his anointed messengers. And they understand the reality. What, what are the crowds seeing? The crowds are seeing the people that opposed Jesus, killed Jesus, and are now opposing his prophets. And then they're seeing the apostles performing miracles, signs and wonders. People are being healed. Masses are being saved. Demons are being cast out of people. This is why we say that the signs and wonders serve the purpose of validating the ministry of the apostles. We have the whole old covenant edifice still standing at this day. The priesthood, the sacrificial system. We have the leaders of that system, of the old covenant system, saying, forget about Jesus. Forget about his apostles. He's no one. This is idolatry. And yet we have the apostles performing signs and wonders. They are spirit-empowered agents of God. And God is saying, these are mine. If you follow the priesthood, if you follow the old covenant, that is now the way of death because they have denied Jesus Christ. These are my true disciples. These are now the true sons of Abraham. The true followers of Yahweh are those that believe upon the Christ. And so for a time, temporarily, the apostles and some of their, um, of their fellow men are endowed with an incredible measure of the Spirit of God to heal and to restore in a way that has not been seen. We have a lot, uh, we, this, this could be a sermon in itself, but we have a lot of faith healers today. 
that claim to be able to heal and claim to have miraculous healing ministries. You can turn on the TV and you'll see them and they fly in fancy jets and they make a lot of money and they dare to never set foot in a hospital because they can't heal a lick. They have a, a, a show, a gimmick that is put forth to prop up their ministries, to make them money, but you do not see masses of people coming to any man today and being healed in this regard. Could God do it? Certainly he could. But it seems to me that this pouring out of the Spirit was, was for the validation of the apostolic ministry and for the validation of the preaching of the gospel as the church is founded. How do the apostles respond? We must obey God rather than men. This is the only thing that we can do. We have no choice in the matter. And that should be our response. Amen? I have no choice. I must obey the Lord. This is what I'm duty-bound to do because God is worthy. I serve a worthy Christ. Now, the preaching is, is, is slicing and dicing into these men. We serve here. We claim to serve the same God. But, but you killed Jesus. God has exalted him to give repentance and forgiveness you don't have repentance and forgiveness because you rejected Jesus. He's also given the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. You don't have the Holy Spirit because you have not obeyed Him. It is a striking, bold stand that they take. And we see the response in what I've called a wicked judgment in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while and said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That was taking his advice. It seems for a minute that Gamaliel has talked some sense into these men. It seems that he has some wisdom here. He's hesitant. He's not buying their message. He hasn't said, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's still rejecting what they're saying, but he's at least saying, let's, let's watch. Let's see. We don't want to oppose the work of God. We may be wrong. And so the text says they take his advice and they beat them. Charge them again, never to speak in the name of Jesus. To me, uh, maybe I'm just dense, but to me that doesn't sound like not getting in the way and seeing if this is a work of God when you demand they never speak about Jesus again. right? And this was going lenient by flogging them, by, by beating them. It said right there in verse 33, they wanted to kill them. Now they didn't have the authority to do that right there and then, but they killed Jesus, so they could certainly make it happen. So these men's life is on the line. This is, not a, this is not standing before the court downtown because you got a ticket for a noise 
ordinance because you preached too loud, right? This is, this is truly could be life or death on the line as they stand before these men, and it says that they are beaten. Now, this is not just getting punched in the stomach or slapped in the face, but they were flogged, likely 39 lashes with a whip. Um, the Jews maybe did not have the cat of nine tails that Jesus experienced with the metal and bone in the, in the, in the whip, but nonetheless, a leather whip across your back 39 times is a brutal beating that they would have experienced. Some men would die at times from this, be maimed for life. And then we see these wonderful, incredible, shocking words in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, think about this for a minute, if you would. They were beaten by these men. They were probably whipped with whips. They're bloodied, they're battered, they're bruised, they're beaten. They, they just got out of there potentially with their lives. They could have condemned them, tried to condemn them to death. And what do they do? They gripe, they complain, they're frustrated. They say, enough of this Christianity, enough of this Jesus, my whole life has been ruined. No, they rejoice. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I think Paul takes up this same line of thinking in Philippians chapter 3. He talks about his, all of his earthly accomplishments, all that he did as a, as a Pharisee. And he says, I counted all his loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, that I may, verse 10, <clears throat> know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, share is sort of a weak word, I think, personally. There, um, The word is fellowship or communion or koinonia is the Greek word. And Paul says, I want to have communion with Christ in his suffering. I think we might extrapolate from that in other texts that there is a component of communion or fellowship with Jesus that we cannot have unless we do share in his sufferings. Because he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is so much of his ministry. And so we commune and relate to him in a unique way when we as well suffer dishonor for his name. So I want to make three points of application as we think about this incredible story, which I really think climaxes in this rejoicing to be counted worthy. And so the first statement is this. Following Jesus means you will suffer. Following Jesus means you will suffer. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus preparing his, his apostles there in John 14 to 16, and he tells them that you will have tribulation in this world. Paul, as he writes to Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, expected. It's, it's part of our life if we are faithful to the Lord. Luke chapter 14 and 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. 
Now, that's a strong, absolute statement from the mouth of our Lord. Whoever does not bear his own cross, deny himself, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. James tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials because trials work. They, 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 they cause things to happen. Romans chapter 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Peter as well, rejoice, uh, Peter, 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Jesus said very plainly, they hated me, they will hate you. Right? They hated me, they will hate you. And, and, and for us that have lived in this country for our lives, especially maybe those that have been here around for a while, um, there was a time of relative ease for Christians. Yes? Would you agree with that? It wasn't really that hostile here. You could be a Christian and you could do your thing and you could even be respected in the community. That might be seen as a positive thing. But in these last years, we are seeing in our own context that the dividing line is becoming far clearer. Right? The black and white, the, the absolutes are becoming far clearer. And so today, in 2023, if you live a public Christian life, now notice I gave a qualifier there, a public Christian life. You, you can live a privatized faith with a sort of pietistic mindset that says, my faith is personal, it's just about me and Jesus, and I don't impose that upon anyone, I don't, I don't talk about that. I just, in my home, I read my Bible and I pray and I love the Lord. But, but, you know, I don't talk about politics and religion to people because that's inappropriate. There's been a, a lot that have seen the Christian faith like that. But if you live a public faith, if you live as a Christian in the public square, if you live according to the convictions that you have that are found in the Bible, then you will feel it today. You will suffer in some regard. And that may be getting worse. Your family relationships, they may be strained. Your flesh will certainly need to be denied. Your dreams and desires and plans that you have may be dashed and cast aside in obedience to the Lord. You may be called to leave a lucrative job that does not honor Christ. You may be called to leave a relationship with someone you care about that does not honor Christ. You may use, lose your livelihood if you're a business owner and you refuse to bow to the cultural idols and agendas of our day. You may be canceled. You may stand before Magistrates, all this to say, beloved, you must count the cost of being a Christian. You must count the cost of being a Christian. Again, listen to Jesus' words, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Jesus is warning his disciples that you need to count the cost if you're going to follow me. You need to consider that there will be loss in your life. There will be trouble 
in your life if you seek to faithfully live in obedience to the Lord. Boys and girls, here, can I, can I see the eyes of the boys and girls in here? We appreciate you guys. We're so blessed to have you here in the service with us. I want to say to you, boys and girls, um, you're being raised. You, you should know this. You're being raised in a world that doesn't like what you believe. You're being raised in a world that doesn't want you to believe the things that you believe. You're being raised in a world that thinks that the things you believe are mean and hateful, and some even think that it's wrong for your parents to have the privilege of teaching you those things. And there is going to be many times in your life, adults as well, where it is far easier to just go with the flow, to just do what everyone else is doing, to act like them, talk like them, live like them, to, to walk as they walk. It will be far easier to not stand for Jesus than it will be to stand for Jesus. A nasty joke, an inappropriate comment about a boy or a girl, but the Lord Jesus promises to strengthen you that you might stand in your time. Even as little ones, He will give you opportunities to stand for Jesus, to say, my daddy says for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve Jesus here. That's who we are, and that's what we do. And the world thinks that's awful, sadly. So many will hate your parents for teaching you that. Know that. Parents, we must prepare these kids for war. I know that I'm not that old, but the world is radically different than when I was a child. And my parents and my grandparents and our children are being brought up parents in a world that we can't even right now wrap our heads around how messed up it is. We need to prepare our children for battle. Secondly, following Jesus means he must be first even if it causes us to suffer. He must be first even if it causes us to suffer. I love the statement of the apostles. We, we, we must obey God rather than men. Right? As Christians, the choice of will I or will I not be faithful in some area, that choice is gone, beloved. That choice is gone. We have a new Lord. We have a new king. The only question that we ought to ask is, how can I please the Lord here? Look at what we've seen as the apostles. They preach and they're arrested and they are commanded by the authorities. You must stop. Never preach or teach the name of Jesus again. They're forbidden from preaching the gospel. They're arrested again and now their safety is at risk. And they are commanded, never preach the gospel. And then they get out, and what do they do? They preach again, and they're arrested again. And this time they're beaten, and they are commanded to stop. They are whipped with a whip by the authorities, and they're told, never again to preach the gospel. Surely that's enough, right? Surely Jesus doesn't want us to suffer in that regard, and it would be fine for them to say, man, we've, we've, we've earned our stripes. We've done our diligent duty. But we read in verse 42 that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Their priority was to the word of God. How can I please him and how can I be faithful to him? The man pleaser asked, asked the question, how is this going to hurt me? How is this going to inconvenience my life? But the God pleaser says, how can I best glorify God here, even if it means loss? difficulty or suffering for me. 
And thirdly, following Jesus means you can rejoice when you are counted worthy to serve him. Now, I've said more than suffer here. The text says they were counted worthy to suffer. I've changed that to we can rejoice when we are counted worthy to serve him. That is, in any capacity, that we ought to rejoice when Jesus says, you are worthy to serve me in the most menial of tasks. I remember when I was just broken over my sin, God was doing a work in my life, and I'm not telling this story to say, look at me, in any way. But I had the opportunity to serve in a church. As a janitor. And I remember being so humbled that I was able to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. That the Lord let me, filthy man that I am, sweep the bathrooms and prepare rooms so Bible studies could happen and and sit in the sanctuary alone and seek his face and rub shoulders with the ministers there. What an honor to serve Christ in anything that he might allow us to be used by him. And I really think if this is the filter by which we see everything, we'll have the right perspective on whatever comes our way, that God has deemed me worthy in this capacity to serve him, and thus I can rejoice. I know many, some here were threatened and some did lose their job and family security because in good conscience, you could not take the jab. And it, many could say, this is wrong. You know, I've labored in this field for years and I've, I, I'm, I've paid student debts for decades to, to, to make it so I could have financial security and I'm one of the best employees in my field and I'm losing my job because my convictions said I cannot do this. Or you could say, I've been counted worthy by Christ in this small way to suffer as a Christian because it is my Christian convictions that made this choice for me. I know some have lost their jobs refusing to agree to the diversity training and pride indoctrination and the the going along with all of the agenda. And we can gripe and we can complain and we can be annoyed by that. Or Or we can say, I've been counted worthy by Christ in this small way to suffer dishonor for His great name. Maybe your friends at school will mock you because you abstain from their sin or you don't listen to the things they listen to or watch the things they watch or, or, or laugh at the things that they laugh at. Or maybe your neighbors treat you like a fanatic. Your adult children don't want to talk to you because you're a bigot, they would say. Or you have to pass up some lucrative opportunity that comes your way because your integrity would be challenged. Or you may have to stand before a magistrate one day and suffer jail time or sanctions. You can rejoice in all suffering on the true path of obedience if you recognize that Jesus has counted you worthy to serve him in this small way. If you see suffering in this way, you can experience joy in the midst of it as our Lord set forth, as brother, the brother read, as he, as, he, as he set his faith toward the cross, Um, for the joy set before him. He despised the shame. He didn't enjoy the suffering of the cross, but the glory that awaited, the bringing many sons to glory, the exaltation to the right hand of his father. He saw that, and he willingly endured the cross, despising the shame. So Christian, be faithful in your station. 
Where has God called you this day? Where has he placed you? Labor with zeal and seek the Lord for strength and obey him and rejoice when the world hates you on account of him. I know I've gone long. I want to read to you one example of this in church history. Winter, 1685 in Scotland, was, would be the height of what we now call the killing times. I've spoken of this before. Scottish Presbyterians were hunted down as dogs, as wild animals by the soldiers. And there was a, a, a man, a faithful Christian named John Nisbet. He was a loyal servant for Christ's crown and covenant. And he had met with three other men for prayer and for business in a building. Now, this at the time would be known as a, an illegal meeting, an illegal religious meeting. They were not allowed to meet. He was a wanted man because of his convictions. And his son would later comment in a journal that it pleased the Lord that day that they were seen. It's a high view of the providence of God. It pleased God that his father was seen by the authorities that were hunting him down like a dog. Forty soldiers rushed upon the building where these men were. Forty dragoons. And a fight broke out. Musket shots were spent. These men fought valiantly for their lives. And his three friends were murdered there that day before him. His capturer recognized his face. They actually shared the same last name. They were relatives. And his captor knew that he was somebody in the Covenanter movement. And if he brought him in alive to be hung publicly, he'd probably get a reward for such a nice prize as this man. And so the, his captor sort of mocked him. You know, what do you think of yourself now? Look at your friends. And he says, I'm, I'm, I feel pity for myself that I don't have the glorious estate that they have as they're in heaven and you've just brutally murdered these men. And, and the man is messing with him. You're going you're gonna to die a worse death than your friends. Brings him to Edinburgh. He's, he's riddled with, with wounds now from the fight that they were in. And he's called to answer for his faith before the magistrate there. And he says to them, I would rather, I am more afraid to lie than I am to die. I'm more afraid to disobey God than I am to die today. And I am just as willing to give my life as you are to take it. And upon the sentence of death being pronounced, he blessed God that he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. Now John Nisbet had long anticipated the day that he would seal his allegiance to Christ with his own blood. And this is an excerpt of his dying testimony. He's so wounded that he can't even lift his head off of his mat. And he says, farewell, my children. <clears throat> Study holiness in all of your ways and praise the Lord for what he hath done for me. And tell all my Christian friends to praise him on my account. Farewell, sweet Bible and wanderings and contendings for truth. Welcome death. Welcome the city of my God, where I shall see him and be enabled to serve him eternally with full freedom. Welcome, blessed company, the angels and spirits of just man made perfect. But above all, welcome, welcome, welcome our glorious and alone God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, for thou art worthy. Amen. The day finally came. He was brought by his captors before the scaffold where he was to be hung and he ascended that platform and he cries out, My soul doth magnify the Lord. How I have longed these 16 years to seal the precious cause of Christ with my blood. And he has answered my request. And he has left me no more ado but to come here 
and pour forth my last prayers, sing forth my last praise to him in time on this sweet and desirable scaffold, mount that ladder, and then I shall quickly get home to my father's house to see, enjoy, serve, and sing forth the praises of my glorious Redeemer forevermore, world without end. He then spoke to the crowds, earnestly urging them to hide and find refuge in Christ from the coming judgments of their accusers. He, as many covenanters would, recited the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. He prayed a deep and moving prayer, and he sang the first few verses of the 34th Psalm. God will I bless at all times. His praise my mouth shall still express. My soul shall boast in God. The meek shall hear with joyfulness. Extol the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He heard and did me from all fears delivered. And there he died, December 4th, 1685, with full assurance of faith, one of those for whom this world is not worthy. How does a man stand with joy in his heart as he faces the sting of death, as he's seen his friends murdered, as his body is riddled with wounds? It is because he rejoiced that he was counted worthy to serve the Lord in whatever capacity God desired. He left that piece up to God. Would it be glorious ministry or would it be hunted down for 15 years as a criminal? He rejoiced that the Lord God had used him even unto death. May God grant us the same measure and strength in the hour of trouble. Let's pray. Our Lord and God.